Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a podcast about the civic technology movement. We seek to harness the power technology has to improve the delivery of public services to people everywhere. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Civic Tech Chat, the live show. This is our second time going about this and our second month of doing so. My name is Ryan Cook, a contributor here to this fair podcast. And as always, I'm joined by two other contributors, starting with... Um, hi, Mohit Rao, um, based in St. Louis, software developer and um, interested citizen. Hey, I'm Leah Bannon, and I uh, worked in Civitech a long time, and I've worked at AT&F and USDS, and I uh, was a Code for America brigade captain at one time. So um, I am also very excited because we have another person who's worked in a lot of different spaces in civic tech um, today. Emily Fong is here with us. Emily, can you introduce yourself? Yeah. What's up, Internet? Um, my name is Emily. I work at Propel. This is based in downtown Brooklyn. So we're a for-profit software company, but we have a lot of roots in civic tech um, and a lot of crossovers still. Um, subtle plug, we're hiring. Um, I've also uh, had the opportunity to work in nonprofit civic tech spaces like with Putting It Forward um, and Civic Hall based in New York as well. Um, and I worked for a while as a contractor um, at the U.S. Census Bureau. So I, the first thing I wanted to talk to you about is actually Propel. Um, I know y'all provide financial tools for low-income folks. Um, and so I was wondering if you could just kind of explain a little bit to us about what the company's doing and, and also, you know, what the experience is like for folks who need those um, and use those benefits and what it's like for them without those tools. For sure. Um, Propel's origin story started, I want to say, like five-ish years ago. Um, so our CEO had kind of the experience of, uh, like growing up and kind of being someone with, um, a low income background and kind of held that throughout his, uh, career as he, you know, uh, graduated from school and got into Silicon Valley, um, eventually landing at LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, he left Facebook for kind of a broader sense of purpose and, um, wanted to found something that was meaningful. And so that eventually kind of the, the seed of the idea that became FreshEBT. Um, FreshEBT is Propel's core offering. It's a mobile phone app that helps you manage your food stamp benefits if you are a uh, recipient of those programs. Um, we also have some interfacing with different programs like TANF and WIC. Um, and the reason kind of we found our home in this space is because if you know anyone or have been on these benefits programs yourselves, um, it's not a great experience uh, by any means. Um, the way it works is that you get your food stamps benefits on like a tiny, almost kind of like a debit card. It's called an EBT card, stands for Electronic Benefit Transfer. Um, and use that card to pay for your groceries at specific EBT retailers. So if you, um, and the important thing is that you have to have one of those in your neighborhood. Um, so when you go, you have to have the EBT card out. It usually looks pretty distinct from other forms of payment mechanisms. Um, and you often are not able to check your balance on the card uh, without going through kind of this process of calling a phone number, waiting for it to pick up, uh, entering your information. It's a transaction that takes about a minute, two minutes. Um, for a lot of people who are on food stamp benefits, they're kind of trying to juggle this while being parents, while working, while, you know, kind of running in and out and trying to plan their whole grocery shopping and food experience for an entire month. 
Um, and kind of the increased visibility of doing that in spaces often leads to a lot of kind of internalized shame or feelings of inadequacy or just kind of an overall not great experience. It's also just kind of inefficient. Um, so we built FreshEBT to kind of address that need and try and provide other opportunities and avenues for folks who are low income to find resources and take them in. Yeah, I mean, I know I've been in the grocery line before and at some points in my life worried I wasn't be able to pay for it myself or seen folks who I knew were using food stamps and like unsure if they had enough and um, there wasn't a great way of checking like what the actual balance was before trying to check out and it's a really dehumanizing terrible experience to be stuck with people waiting behind you in line and um yeah i'm curious um like have you heard more uh kind of different stories about like when folks are using your tools like different kinds of things that it's like saved them from or um help, help made things easier for them yeah i mean there's definitely like kind of the hard like financial and monetary numbers i think a while back, we did a study with Harvard Business School. I think it found that we saved people. Um, we had the ability to help people extend their benefits for two additional days over the course of the government shutdown when there was that long period between um, benefits recipients actually getting the benefit before the shutdown and then getting it after. So that was like a very stressful time for our users and we were able to kind of prove a lot of our value there. Um, I would also say that like, I'm fortunate kind of in my day-to-day -day job to really be able to like work with our users and bring them into our process. Um, I think the word that you use dehumanizing is like definitely um, something that people feel, especially with the societal stigma around being on benefits um, or otherwise just needing help. I remember we talked to a, um, a user who had actually been one of our longer term users who had been on the app since I think 2016. Um, he was homeless for a long time, um, had been kind of in and out of shelters, um, only recently found transitional housing, was really struggling for a long time. Um, but like he told us that like having FreshBT on his phone, on his device, actually created this really important psychological benefit for him that he felt like, you know, the app was getting updated every two days. Like somebody is out there kind of watching out, you know, making something for me and, you know, making me feel like they cared about me. And so... Um, there's kind of, you know, like the, the data that we can point to, but I also think, in my opinion, at least something equally as important is just making sure that like everyone in our society has something that's made for them that, you know, they feel like they can be included in the world of tech. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point. And like, um, I, I think, I'm glad you also flagged that shutdown thing, because I think that um, there's always been this kind of debate in civic tech about, um, you know, when a government shutdown happens, like how much of the government should we keep running um, and, mm -hmm. and keep going, that's important. Um, and I've always landed on the side of like, we should shut everything. Like if you're gonna cut off food stamps for people or WIC benefits for people trying to like, you know, just literally feed their babies, like we should shut everything down. We shut the websites down, like nobody else gets government if we're gonna let people fall through the cracks like this. Um, mm -hmm. Although, you know, of course, I think we should never shut down government and that it shouldn't even be on the line, but, you know. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely an interesting, I actually had not really thought about that thought experiment, but yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Feels unfair. 
Um, another thing I, uh, we talked about previously about Propel is that um, y'all are a for-profit company. Um, so I was curious if you could talk a little bit about how you make your money and how you keep it ethical. Yes. Yeah. I get this question all the time and excuse me. And I'm genuinely so glad that people ask it because it's so easy to kind of just look at Propel and be like, this seems incredibly shady. It's not, I promise. Um, so the way that we make money is through an ads platform. So we host advertising in the app, but we also pair that with incredibly stringent advertising guidelines. So like our basic baseline rule of thumb is that if it doesn't generate like um, actually user value, like for the people who are using it, we're not going to put it in the app. Um, I think the important thing to note here is that user value looks really different for low income folks than it does for, or ethical user value. Um, it looks different for low income folks than for someone like me who has like the opportunity and the privilege to be able to choose to like not buy from Amazon. I can go to a local grocery store, not buy from Whole Foods um, or not use Uber. And so like we try and be thoughtful and really respectful of like the kinds of circumstances that somebody might find themselves in for where a like discounted EBT prime benefit is uh, Amazon prime benefit is actually really, really useful. Um, that is something in particular that we've found, like, for example, um, folks who are on disability um, as well, like we tend to have a lot of crossover between different benefit programs. Um, they really find it difficult to go and use their EPT benefits because they, you know, need to find transportation. There's no public transportation in a lot of places. Um, so like Amazon running a pilot where you can get groceries delivered with your EPT and pay for it with EPT. Um, is a huge game changer for people. And so like, those are the kind of considerations that we weigh when we go and embark on a partnership. We also have a lot of content running in the app from nonprofits, from local governments to kind of support programs at that level. On the, uh, continuing on that like ethics handling thread, I would be curious to hear a bit about how your organization makes decisions regarding mm -hmm. like how its interaction with users go because, you know, it being a benefit program like this, there's going to be an inherent kind of power dynamic thing going on. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how that how that works and maybe like what you see uh, like your role personally as in trying to like influence that the right way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So I'll start you know, with the first part of it, which is um, the part about how we incorporate uh, users into our process here. I would say that the users themselves are a really, really big part of how we continue to define and build Propel. Um, we've hired users directly to do things like translations, like we have a really fabulous woman who lives in Connecticut doing a lot of our Spanish language translations, and she was an app user. We hired her through the app because we wanted to support someone directly um, through um, our user base and through that system. Um, and alongside that, kind of on a more like higher level decisions, we often have a lot of users kind of coming in and out of the office. Um, we set up childcare. We want to make sure that like, um, the folks who are using our app kind of feel comfortable in our office space as well. So when they come in and do interviews or um, help us make decisions about how best to serve them, um, we try and try and be as accommodating as possible. Um, in terms of like my job, so I work on our product team, um, specifically on our core product. So that's like maintaining FreshGPT, making sure that it still works, um, having, you know, like, and scoping new features as well. Um, I would say that user feedback plays a really, really big role in how we continue to like invest resources into the app where we continue to keep building and developing. Um, and we, we do take a lot of care to like have conversations with folks. Like we run surveys all the time, like, Hey, like, is this actually useful for you? Does this 
does this make your life more stressful? Like, what are what are other contexts that we, as people who have different life experience from you, are missing? And so we really try and fill in that broader picture. Out of curiosity, uh, are there any examples that come to mind of something where you got like an input and you're like, oh, well, crap, maybe we need to make a change here that you'd be willing to share? Yeah, I think so. Um, I feel like there's actually a lot of a lot of circumstances like that, um, but uh, I can say that for like let's say um, uh, that we're doing, we're, we're running a lot of research right now for a couple of different discovery things that we're doing internally. Um, and a lot of them are kind of focused around uh, specific demographics. So 80% of our users are mothers, um, parents, single parents who are using EBT or have non-traditional families. Um, and they use it to budget, not just for themselves, but for their kids. And so Fresh EBT as a product had really not catered to families at all like we obviously we have things like um content running the app for like kids museums in different cities that are free with ebt and all these kind of different things but we had never really thought about specific messaging about families and so now that we've kind of really like dug into that and delved into that and had conversations with um working mothers all across the country like we realized like oh this is a huge part of our users identities and experiences that we just have not addressed um and so like that's i think for me like a really big learning especially as someone who's on the younger side who is not really thinking about families in any way in the near term um i think like that was a very like big eye-opener for me personally i i wanted to follow up real quick on um the profit thing because i was i'm kind of curious like one of the things that like that sounds like an awesome model and uh, like one of the things that i've seen happen is like companies like this grow over time or something it's like they start out with like a leadership team that is fully dedicated to that approach and a staff that is recruited based on that approach and mm -hmm. then you know times get tough or things start to change and if it's not like written down everywhere is like these are our official policies like it starts right. to kind of change a little bit like i've seen it happen a, a bunch with like some civic tech um startups that start taking on dod work or something that a lot of people at the company oppose so mm -hmm. i'm curious like how how much is it like really in, enshrined in in your company policies and stuff to maintain that approach yeah super super good question really important one um, I would say it's very, very enshrined, not just kind of in the stuff that our like partnerships team does. Um, they obviously have that as their kind of like driving mission statement day to day, but even the things um, that like you can look at our website and our company values and one of the first one is like, um, is listen first, is make sure that folks who we serve have a seat at the table. Um, and like those things are baked into anything from our performance reviews, how well are you exemplifying that, how, how actually thoughtful and empathetic are you being, um, with our user base to the way that we interview to the way that we shape culture, um, even to the way that we decorate our office. We did this really awesome thing a while back where we actually commissioned a piece of art from one of our users and it's hanging up somewhere. I can't actually see it from here, but it's, it's somewhere in here. Um, and so like we, we really do try and like actively ingrain that not just into our processes, but in our physical space and our day to day. Okay, so I wanted to travel back in time a little bit and talk about your experience at Census because mm -hmm. I uh, know you were on a kind of innovation type team there. Um, and I'm curious, um, like, if you could tell us a little bit about the team you worked on and um, 
I'm especially curious about, you know, what you expected it to be like when you joined and then what your actual experience was like when you were there. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, I worked on, it's kind of phrased as like a startup within census. It's called, it was called, or I think it's still called census open innovation labs. Um, it had, it ran basically a lot of different programs. The main one being the opportunity project, which was kind of a public private partnership type of program. Um, we would go to companies like IBM or Airbnb and Google and be like, hey, can we like borrow some engineers to do this really cool thing and showcase some federal data while, while we do it. Um, so I think it was a really cool experience coming in, especially kind of like as a, I think I, I, I participated in this through the Civic Digital Fellowship Program and by putting it forward. Um, so it was cool to be there kind of as a summer, like kind of as an intern, but also given a lot of responsibility and kind of shaping um, the messaging and the mission of like the program and kind of getting to touch a lot of those different parts. Um, I don't know. I don't really know what I expected to be honest. It's kind of, as I'm kind of thinking back, cause it's, it's almost like a weird dichotomy of like this massive bureaucracy and then this like startup kind of trying to just do what it's trying to do. And, you know, there are definitely points where we, um, the two kind of methodologies or ways of thinking or different ways that we would approach our work bumped up against, you know, older, things or not traditions but kind of like rules or like regulations or you know it took a long time for us to um to even like kind of like get the right technology like we, i hot spotted from my phone the entire summer because i think like there's a whole process to get like adobe illustrator on my computer um which i think is is a not uncommon experience from what i hear true true yeah um but i think i ended up learning a lot it was a really it was really Sometimes difficult, but rewarding. I think. Cool. Um, I one of the things I've been thinking about related to that, you know, um, it's it's very inspiring and awesome work, and yet sometimes there's a lot of kind of burnout or something that we don't expect. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about how there's a lot of unwritten rules that are crucial to the way that ETF or USDS, in my experience, functions. Like um, we uh, not 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 perfectly but um a lot of times we've um negotiated for better pay better working conditions better hardware um you know if if things are going poorly or we need to speak truth to power and it doesn't work out we have a lot of protection from our leadership or we can move to another agency if we have to mm -hmm. um you know the, i'm i'm just i'm curious like um how much you think that that kind of mentality is also spreading because i don't think we talk about it as much Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind because it's it's interesting to kind of be coming into civic tech and now kind of coming out of it a little bit. Um, in part because like I think there is a slight defensiveness in because it's such a young industry. It's you know everybody still really wants everyone to be super gung ho, and then like we kind of run up about these difficult questions about like should we be political? Like how outspoken should we be? Things like that. Um, and it feels, I mean, I, I understand like the hesitation to some degree or like the, the desire to kind of want to be like a, let's just, I'll get in the boat and everything will be fine kind of thing. Um, you need buy-in. You, you need to kind of play politics for that. And like, I, I feel like I can't really begrudge anyone for doing that, but I think it definitely contributed a little bit to my own burnout. Um, I won't say I'm burned out necessarily, but I think it was just like, I think I wanted to kind of had the experience of, you know, doing something like a for-profit or a private sector um, and just, you know, reflect on that from a little bit of a distance. Um, I think you can definitely kind of see those dynamics playing out even as you leave. But again, it's, it's difficult to like really 
for me to take a stance because I understand why it needs to happen. Yeah. yeah. Well, and like the other part about our model and is also part of, I think the, like the fellowship or the uh, internship model is that mm-hmm. we expect to like, leave after a short period of time and you know as we talk about like telling like state and city governments to implement these models we that's less less significantly less practical for them mm-hmm. um so i'm curious like did you feel like you could have like stayed there and been happy for a long time or like what do you think about that like turnover model the turnover model i think the turnover model is interesting i I actually stayed on contract with Census for a while after my fellowship, so um, I didn't fall, you know, super strictly into the turnover. But I think, to some degree, like um, a, a lot of it is kind of like I think we may need to do a better job of managing expectations. Like you come in and you know you definitely should not expect a startup experience. You should definitely not expect um like a tech company experience because a government isn't that it's we we get the government should be run like a business people it's not it probably should not be in my opinion at least um and so like i think you know something that may contribute to at least like kind of my feeling of burnout was that like oh like this is this is kind of just a lot to handle it's such a unique and different problem space and i felt like i was as I kind of got into it was more and more prepared to handle that day to day but ultimately I just kind of that um, comment about like burnout feelings has come up I think a few times as we've been talking through this with you I'd be curious are there any like techniques that you were doing personally to try to either like stave it off prevent it however you want to look at it in order to like kind of keep yourself from burning out uh, before due time Mm -hmm. or that you're doing Um, right now (laughs) (laughs) Like it's really hard when you're talking to people all the time who have really difficult life experiences. And I don't know. I get really frustrated that I can't do do more to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel that way. Um, can I ask a clarifying question, Ryan? If do you, are you specifically talking about like civic tech or in kind of like the emotional stuff in my role day to day now? Um, I was actually thinking probably like the the latter kind of broader scope, just like the like burnout as a concept, whether it's like what you're doing now or or otherwise. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I definitely am like a very emotional person, I think. Um, and so like there are moments like in when I was working at Census where I kind of was feeling that burnout from just like, you know, bureaucracy and the like, kind of typical things. Um, but I would say that I experienced like uh, definitely, especially earlier in my role here at Propel, there was definitely, you know, a not insignificant amount of it. I was talking to people every single day. I manage a lot of our customer experience processes. So having conversations with folks who are just really in difficult situations um, and not being able to do anything about it because I am not the government and did not have the institutional power that I wish I could have to just fix the problem. Um, But like, I think part of it is trying to make sure, at least for me, that we're kind of like staying on mission. Like it's difficult work and I'm sure our colleagues in government who are, you know, frontline staff or caseworkers who hear this every single day definitely have it no easier than I did, if anything, much worse. Um, and so, like, to be able to think about it in terms of, like, I'm doing yeah, an active process to try and, like, make a situation better. Um, it, one of our, like, early things at Propel was, like, called Google the Pumpkin. I learned this story the other day. Um, in that, I think it was referring to a really early email we got from a user. It was way before I started. Um, they were asking if they could use EBT benefits to buy a pumpkin for Halloween. 
and nobody in the office knew the answer. And it was one of those things where it's like, well, we should like put in the effort to figure this out for this person. Like it's a good, regardless of what, it's a good question or not. Like it's a thing that somebody needs and somebody wants to know and may put a lot of emotional investment into knowing. And so like put, keeping that in the back of our minds and being like, we're going to do this service and we're going to do the extra mile. And like, we are going to, you know, make the effort to take the emotional hit um, because it helps somebody at the end of the day. I think that's important. But I also think like I'm managing it better now by doing a lot of things outside of work. Um, some organizing work and stuff uh, to make me feel like I'm making a difference in other ways. So I think this wouldn't be a hard-hitting journalistic program if I didn't follow up by asking, was, could they buy the pumpkin? What was the answer? <laughs> I think it counts as a, like a food or vegetable. So if you buy it at a grocery store, I think it counts. Ah, okay. Well, that, yeah. that's good to know. Yeah, just in case. <laughs> Yeah, I think those are great points. I mean, two kind of themes that I've heard before that it sounds like you're talking about are, um, you know, celebrating the wins um, that you do have. It's so crucial, mm-hmm. especially to have that kind of team camaraderie and recognition of, you know, even the small wins that uh, and progress that you're making. And then also kind of leaning into the gratitude um, in your own life that you're not personally experiencing some of those things. Um, and, and just... Ha- recognizing that you're kind of lucky and grateful for that mm-hmm. for sure for sure yeah it's really revealing it's a really revealing experience i think for a lot of people in tech to be able to come into this space and you know do the stuff that you were doing at ba for example um civic tech i think really engages people in a, wor- a world broader than their own um I, I would love for there to be more of that Cool. Well, so that actually is a good transition into another question. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because um, I I know that uh, you volunteer with DSA, uh, which is the Democratic Socialists of America, um, which are volunteer groups across the country fighting for their communities and um, winning things like uh, paid sick leave and higher minimum wages um, in their areas. So I'm curious, um, how did you first get into uh, DSA? How did you first like hear about it? What was your first entry point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, spread the DSA love. Um, <laughs> my first entry point was actually one of my friends in school. So I graduated from NYU just about a year ago now. Um, and she had been super, super involved in the YDSA, which is like the youth offshoot of DSA. Um, there was a branch at NYU. And so we were doing a lot of, um, or she was doing a lot of kind of work with them. Um, it was also around the time where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Julia Salazar, um, who is a, a state senator in New York, were kind of like two really rising stars in the world of um, progressive politics. And so like she was like door knocking for AOC and Julia Salazar. And um, like I just found that work to be super, super inspiring. Um, so I started paying my dues and then not doing much else because it was just like I don't know, I think I was anxious to do some of the like on the ground work that DSA really requires to, you know, make change. Um, and then 2020 happened and I was just kind of scrolling through Twitter aimlessly one day watching everybody get really, you know, stressed about, you know, all of the circumstances that were happening. And I think, you know, it finally clicked. I was like, no, I have like time now. I should, I should really get involved. And so um, the past few weeks or month or so since then, I've been getting out and doing a lot of canvassing for 
um, the next DFA slate in New York to um, a couple of really awesome local candidates who are running in Brooklyn to represent um, these our neighborhoods in Albany, um, in the State House, in the State Senate, and the State Assembly. Mm-hmm. As you're no doubt aware, personally now, you know, getting involved politically like this, it's not only important, but it requires, you know, a bit of putting yourself out there. You know, when you're knocking on doors or calling folks, like there's some vulnerability you're putting out there and saying, like, this is where I stand, this is what I believe in, and kind of making yeah, that, that signal there. I'd be curious to know, like, what is the why that drives you to, to go and do all of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, putting yourself out there, not, not quite, not so different from being on a podcast. Um, the why I think is, I, I personally feel it as kind of tied to my interest in civic tech and my day-to-day work, um, is that I just kind of, kind of have always, like, felt really strongly about inequity, um, just from different circumstances in my personal life, but also kind of just having, you know, the immense privilege of being around people who have taught me so much about different perspectives and what it's like to grow up in different circumstances around the United States. It always felt kind of weird to me or deeply unfair to me that like, you know, different circumstances like your zip code could determine so much of your future. And so um, I wanted to get into civic tech for that reason because I wanted to do something good with my career. And I think as I've, you know, settled in and gotten comfortable and, you know, really started to feel like I could do more. Um, I kind of just started looking in that direction and being like, what else can I do? What else can I contribute to? Or what other things can I do to make me, you know, be part of something greater than myself? Um, w- w- one of the recent wins that I, I noticed that I was sh- sh- honestly shocked and <laughs> thrilled actually finally happened was getting rid of brokerage fees. Um, yes. I was wondering, can you explain to folks what brokerage fees are and why they're so bad? Yes. <laughs> and oh my God. A little bit about the fight. Yeah. Uh, every time I've had to pay a broker's fee, it's just flashing through my mind right now. Um, so brokerage fees in a lot of major cities, essentially when you are a landlord and you have apartments to list, um, you can hire a broker to help you list and find prospective tenants and do a lot of that pre-screening. So you as a landlord don't have to do it. Um, and landlords in the past have kind of been able to pass on the cost of this as a brokerage fee to the prospective tenant. So if I were to rent an apartment through a broker, I would have to pay like my security deposit, probably a first and last month's rent and a brokerage fee that's usually equivalent to like one month of rent. So if I was renting an apartment for $1,000, um, I would pay $1,000 in security, $2,000 the first and last month and then a thousand in brokerage fees. So a whole fourth of that money would go to a broker. Um, and at, at least in the case in New York City, I mean, that's a sizable chunk of money for a lot of people. Um, and you can find no fee apartments. It was just kind of generally difficult and landlords are not really incentivized to uh, list things for no fee because they didn't have to pay the broker's fee. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing that was so crazy to me about New York was like, it seemed like it was just almost impossible to find uh, no broker fee apartments. And it seems like there was quite a stranglehold on like, um, and pressure on landlords to go with that approach. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, New York in particular has been uh, really grappling with like lobbying from the real estate industry at the highest level. So um, the housing reforms that have passed through and the one that you mentioned, the the one that, you know, happened really suddenly and everyone was really excited about, about making brokerage fees kind of legal. Um, that felt like a huge win for a lot of, you know, the, the whole DSA world, I think. Um, Julia Salazar has been a really tremendous 
champion of housing rights um, in Albany. So, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the races you're working on now? Like, not so much the race itself, but like literally, like, what do you do on a day to day basis to like be involved? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, the DSA slate that I mentioned, um, it's a bunch of different, really awesome folks um, who are public servants, teachers nurses, uh, housing advocates. Um, in particular, I've worked with like organizers who have been supporting three campaigns in particular, um, Jabari Brisport, who's running for state senate, um, Farah Soufrant Forrest, who is running for state assembly, and um, Marcela Matenas, who is also running for state assembly. Um, so I've admittedly like not gotten super deep into the high levels of organizing, but I've been really thankful to be able to like actually go out and like have the experience of like knocking on doors and like talking to a lot of my neighbors and people who live in my community that I would not have, you know, the same kind of exposure to day to day. Um, My first canvassing experience was actually going to NYCHA housing. So um, NYCHA is the New York City Housing Authority. It's I think the biggest landowner in possibly the United States. Um, Some crazy factors like that. And the problem with natural housing is that while they're public housing and they're, you know, the quality of the individual buildings and apartments really varies. And so um, going into a bunch of NYCHA buildings and talking to people who have really been politically disenfranchised, who were just kind of, you know, they had questions about like, why did we rip out a playground to replace it with a thing with radiation signs on the side and nobody is telling me what it is and why I should not be concerned about it. Um, it's kind of just talking to folks who have, you know, who live with this day to day. It's been really, I think, a really valuable experience and really, really different. I have a follow up that's a bit about kind of more like the the experience of, of going door to door. I remember myself from a past life when I uh, had the chance to do that a bit more. That like first time that you go canvassing, how there's that kind of like the kind of like apprehension, and then you finally do it, and mm-hmm. your feelings, at least for me, change completely about the practice. Uh, could you talk a bit about like what it was like for you when you first started canvassing? Yeah, um, I think DSA does a good job of welcoming first-time canvassers. Um, so I was fortunate, like I went to an event, it was really cold, and I was super underdressed for it. Um, so I already was kind of miserable and I was like, oh, this is, this is gonna be a cursed experience, but it's fine. Um, and I ended up getting paired with uh, somebody who was a really experienced canvasser who had you know, been all over Brooklyn in every building, you know, found fun ways to get into every kind of different style of apartment, um, apartment building. And, you know, he kind of walked me through a bunch of different uh, exercises. Like we did a couple of like uh, fake conversations um, and that really kind of helped me with that. I still felt super, super anxious, but I think like once we kind of started talking to people and knocking on doors, it's maybe this is what you experienced a little bit, but I was just like, oh, these are just people. These are just people going about their lives who care about the same things that I do, who care about their communities. And we can just, even if they don't agree with me, we can just have a nice conversation and get to know each other. I think I felt like a much deeper sense of attachment to, to Brooklyn and to the people who live here and to my community after I started doing that. Yeah, I'd say in my experience knocking on doors with DSA, it's um, the fact that they often, if you, if you, speak up and say like this is my first time or I'm new to this pair you with a very experienced person is very 
comforting and also that they um what's so interesting about it is they kind of break down the conversation for you and like a lot of times they'll kind of explain like this is why we say this this way instead of asking it like a totally open-ended random thing we say like can you do this exact thing or you know they they break down the the persuasive approach and and a lot of it is is more about um, not that you need to know every policy or be an expert in everything you're knocking on the door, but that you're actually asking people for um, to tell you what's most important to them and like why that's so important and just kind of leading them towards like, yeah, we all really do need healthcare or like, yeah, brokerage fees are making it really hard for people to move or get an apartment. And like, um, yeah, I think it's, it's a lot easier than it seems. <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah, subtle, subtle push for everybody listening to uh, to get out there and canvas for Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Engage. Uh, so I think we wanted to get a little bit um, back out of politics and into um, y your experience. Ryan, you had a question about um, product management, right? Yeah, I've got a, a question that's a bit about your uh, career journey. I, I noticed that you had transitioned from kind of like a development practice then across into a product management track where you are now. I would be curious about, um, you know, like what made you, what was like your why, like what gravitated you towards product management? I don't actually know. It kind of just was the right, was at the right time, I think. Um, after I graduated from school, I had been looking at developer jobs and I think like personality wise, you know, I, I'm like a fidgety person. I like to be moving. I like to be talking. Um, a lot of people were telling me that you might actually be interested in product management. I really didn't kind of, it, it didn't sit with me until I graduated and was like, all right, now what? Um, and I think at that point it was, it was actually less about the title and um, the role than Propel itself that made me really interested in kind of becoming, taking on this track. Um, my manager had posted my, the job description for my role in uh, a community that Leo runs. Um, and I had like seen it and I was like, this company looks really cool. Like it's a mission that I feel really deeply passionate about. And they have this kind of entry level role of the thing that I haven't explored a lot, um, but am interested in. So I kind of just went for it. Um, I did kind of in the lead up do a lot of work or do some work with coding for it. I ran like a prototype product development program for them um, for student uh, social impact ideas. And so that was kind of the first time I like dipped my foot into the methodology, but it wasn't really until like, I joined Propel or had the opportunity to join Propel that I like really felt like it was time to invest. I think that's a good point. Like um, to get into product management, you, you kind of need to, it, this is a good and bad thing, but like you kind of, um, because it's an avenue that's not really open to everyone who, you know, we don't all have extra time to volunteer, but I think like ha having a side project or having a thing where you can practice it on your own, like in a, a CFA brigade or um, like you did with, uh, taking on more responsibility at coding it forward, like I think is a really good first step for kind of breaking into that because everyone's always looking for someone with experience in it. They're never like interested in giving you your first job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think APM positions in particular are quite difficult to come by unless they're, you know, a lot of times they're in a program or in a really nested within a really large organization. Um, I think Propel, I'm eternally grateful they, they took a chance on me. And the, having that cross practice in your path, does that influence your approach now to like how you go about your day to day and like the way you think about, about problems and if yes, how so? 
Yeah, totally. Um, there are definitely times where like I've had to solve a problem at work and I just went, Hey, can I just build a script for this? Um, and I, I, I feel like everyone in tech or who, who's had like developer experience has just been like, man, this is, this is so automatable. Like, why am I, why am I copying and pasting these rows in an Excel document? Um, and so like, I think, you know, in moments like that, I definitely, definitely am grateful for, you know, my, my background uh, in coding. But I would say like, it, it, it helps kind of inform like implementation ideas, but I think practice comes from um, the experience of being like steeped in a, a, a very product forward culture. Um, do you have some experience with that, Mohit, on like running your brigade? Like, are you seeing a lot of folks trying to kind of level up or get into a new field still or? Yes, actually, um, most of our most of our members are people um, coming from coding boot camps or or I mean, college students who are trying to uh, I mean, we, we have a we have a variety of majors who are like hey you know i tried i tried you know you know biology or i tried writing um but it just one isn't paying the bills and two it's not something that i'm too passionate about so so i, I figured i'd try and you know you, you you're talking about having like a having like a space where you can just kind of test anything out i mean i feel like our brigade is a perfect spot where people are like yeah i mean i'm i'm learning but i'm i'm I want to work on a project. I feel like you know, I'm done. I'm done studying. I just want to, you know, get some experience and get jump in there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I was like that too. I mean, I started when I was, and going from like a coding background to now doing more of like project management, um, and 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 you know, really, really trying to guide projects. I feel like um, that kind of resonated with me when you were talking about that. And Emily, I know you've mentioned um, before, like we need more, not just the entry level, but the like few years of experience roles in civic tech, right? Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about, I mean, I know that was, because Coding It Forward is doing a great, a good job of like getting folks that, en that entry point as interns, but I'm curious what you've seen around or what you're thinking about that. Yeah, totally. Um, I think Coding It Forward has done like a really, really excellent job of kind of building that pipeline, but, it still kind of feels like I think now that I've aged out of the coding it forward years, um, I definitely have like a lot of friends or people I've kind of met or who are kind of in my circle who are really, really interested in technology, who really want to get um, to get into this field somehow. Um, and there's like some confusion there whether or not it's like, should I go work at like a nonprofit? Like, should I, should I spend my formative years at a, a giant tech company? Should I, you know, like, there's a lot of different paths that could potentially lead there, but it feels like for a lot of people really overwhelming to kind of, um, or this is my sense, at least from my, the conversations I've had with my friends, it's like, it feels kind of overwhelming to kind of, you know, take a step into this world because it feels so small and so intimate and everybody knows each other. Yeah. Um, like, it doesn't seem like there's an easy way to be like, oh, I want to, I want to switch and jump into this. Um, it, it feels like there's a lot of awesome opportunities now, thanks to putting it forward in other groups you know, for students and for people who are just out of school, but um, for, you know, that kind of middle group of like people who are kind of experienced, but not super, super experienced yet. Um, there, it seems like there's still some difficulty there. Yeah. Um, question about that. So, so, I mean, I'm, I'm in that right now, you know, I'm going, I, I lead the brigade and I do all the civic tech, but I also work at a for-profit company. 
So it's like, so how do you, I mean, you're talking about, it is overwhelming and, and I'm, I'm at that point where I'm like, do I, do I, what do I want to really, you know, throw myself at? So, and so, I mean, how do you, how did you, how do you make a, how did you make that decision on like what, or have you made that decision on like what, um, yeah. On kind of leaping from like for profit to nonprofit or, or even from like public to private sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think I am someone who enjoys a bit of context switching. Um, and the very first thing I ever did was intern for Civic Hall in New York um, for, I think, a now defunct program called the Civic Hall Labs Division. So they ran like direct service programs. I was specifically working with Delta NYC, which um, paired technology professionals who had volunteered their time with nonprofits who had tech needs. And so I think like starting in that and kind of experiencing like, okay, like this is what nonprofits look like here are the specific kind of challenges of this domain, like whether it's funding or, you know, like getting support from execs or, you know, planning out like how to maintain a program. Um, it taught me a lot about like kind of staying on my feet, like just like how to, to weather a storm, I think, um, or just to adapt to challenges day to day. Um, and I think from there, I kind of was like, okay, like, let's go for full structure. I want to try something with a lot of structure. And I think that's like how I was like, okay, let's try government. Um, and I think I realized that there was like, depending on the space, like you can have a lot of freedom and a lot of, a lot of movement, but inevitably you'll, you'll run up against bureaucracy. That's kind of just what's going to happen. And so I think coming back down to private sector was like my intermediary between the two of like, um, I wanted to work somewhere small. I wanted to, you know, get to know the people that I work with and, you know, be around people who are really like focused on impact and mission. Um, so for me, it was like, it was less kind of like, how do I think about public to private and more about like, what are my values as a person and what are things that I know that I enjoy. And regardless of that context, like I knew that I cared about mission. I cared about, you know, working with really great people. Um, I cared about like a great culture. And so like, I kind of just went and tried to find things in that realm, like based on those criteria as opposed to just the more broader ones. Oh, that was helpful. <laughs> yeah, that sounds kind of familiar to what, like I was in a gov project manager role before 18F started and I was pretty miserable and like sat really sat down and thought like okay what actually makes me happy in a job like it's being around like learning having an impact being around people who are like I can learn from and who are funny like who there's like a like what you're saying about culture like there's a sense of culture and like um then like when I started hearing the rumors of 18F it was like okay I'm chasing that down and harassing yeah. them every day to let me in so um, I'm still trying to figure out, like, now that I've done 18F and USDS, like, what, what else has that? So, mm -hmm. we'll see. I don't know. Yeah. Humor is so underrated in a workplace. Truly, like, Quite I send true. memes in Slack it's every so day, and I refer to my manager as my dude, and it's great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. needs to be a lot of crazy emojis to show yeah. that there's healthy culture <laughs> in <the> Slack. <laughs> Oh, and real quick, we do have a question in the chat asking what civic groups we each work with. Do we want to give that answer as like a recap for folks that are maybe hopped in late to as far as like who we're affiliated with? Uh, yeah, you mean like right now? Mm -hmm. um, 
so for me, I'm, um, I, I, I'm on leave from the VA, but I, I'm there now and kind of trying to figure out what to do next or possibly go back and find a new project there at VA. Um, and then I volunteer a lot through uh, DSA locally. Um, and uh, we've worked on stuff like uh, paid sick leave and, and getting uh, local, uh, our congressmen to support Green New Deal and Medicare for All. Um, and I think like for me, being able to like see that kind of quick, have build that community and see that kind of quick change and have that kind of direct action and like leveling up my organizing skills, learning how to run a canvas, learning how to train uh, people knocking on doors, like has been a good matching to the like slower pace of and bureaucracy of government. And then I like try to show up as many civic tech things as I can. <laughs> Uh, Emily, would you like to go next? Yeah, sure. Um, so I currently work at Propel, which is a consumer software startup um, that builds financial tools for low-income Americans. We're based in downtown Brooklyn, and we're hiring. Um, and I, like Leah, also organize a bit with DSA in my free time uh, down here in Brooklyn, up here in Brooklyn. I don't know where we are geographically. East here in Brooklyn. Um, and we are working on specifically uh, electing, or I am currently working with a lot of folks who are trying to get some really awesome local elected, electeds into office on Green New Deal, Medicare for All, and Housing for All platforms. And uh, Mohit? Mm -hmm. um, I uh, currently lead uh, OpenSCL. It's a local Code for America brigade. Um, so I do mostly, mostly work through there and then um, try to get more involved. And then I, uh, I also I help out with a Code for America brigade called Code for Chicago. And by day, to pay the bills, I'm a software engineer on a Gov project called MillMove. Help service members move their personal stuff when they're told, hey, time to transfer to that other base. That is one of the few projects that does not bother me about working with DOD because it's just like such a nightmare for folks who are currently working there, like trying to sort out that move thing so i mean it's not as much of a nightmare anymore because of that project <laughs> agreed the logistics must be crazy oh yeah my uh the best feedback i've gotten so far is i, I have a cousin that's that serves in the uh, army band and i found out that he had used it like our, our software for their move and so i immediately had to like ask them everything about their experience and they told me that they didn't hate it and it wasn't painful. So I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> That's quite an accomplishment for any move, let alone under the DOD bureaucracy. <laughs> oh, yeah. We got a, another. Burger speed. Sorry. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, I just made a terrible joke about whether or not they have to pay burger speed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have another question. Um, what does Code for America actually do? So the way I usually, I'm curious what y'all say. I usually explain it by saying um, they kind of have a few different uh, divisions. There's um, the brigades, which are a national network of volunteer groups across the country um, that work on volunteer projects in their communities. Uh, a lot of times trying to get open data or do things with open data or um, try to you know, build tools that folks can use to make it easier to apply for benefits or something like that. Um, and then they have a, a team that is focused on the um, 
fellows. Um, and the fellowship program has changed and evolved a lot over the years, and um, they are now embedding folks in brigades, right, and like recruiting people from brigades and, and paying them, and giving them opportunities to work more on their specific projects. Um, and then there's a whole group of folks who work for CFA, um, and they work on uh, projects directly with government agencies sometimes. So we've seen a lot of work that they've done lately on um, expunging records for marijuana convictions in states that have recently legalized weed. Um, and uh, they do a lot of stuff that's similar to like what Propel is doing, where they um, build tools that help you manage your food stamp benefits and stuff like that. But I'm yep. probably leaving a lot of stuff out. Do you all want to <laughs> add, fill in? Ryan, why don't you go take a, take a shot at it? Uh, I don't know that I have much to add there. Uh, I I think that answer was was pretty good. And I, I mean, there, was there anything that you wanted to add to it? Um, no, I don't think so. Actually, it's fairly spot on. Well, um, why don't you tell us about one of the projects that you're working on right now in the OpenSCL? Um, yeah. Um, so there's like a uh, so Code for America, like National Code for America, has has been known for uh, expungement. A project of theirs called Clear My Record in California, and um, one of the things that um, you know we, we were we were beginning to be interested in is seeing if we could kind of implement a similar project in in Missouri, and um, we're right now collaborating with um, the the Kansas City Brigade to see if we can um, implement an automatic expungement for. Drug-related drug charges um, here in Missouri. So, so right now we're it's a it's kind of an uphill battle, but um, um, right now we're we're working with local um, you know, like nonprofit law firms um, to kind of start a clinic uh, clinic system um, here. And Kansas City has been doing the same for like a year now. Um, and then also trying to um, improve like the overall database that the state has for expungement records, um, where it's the data kind of exists, but it's really, really hard to access. Um, so we're working with prosecutors um, in, in, in St. Louis, as well as in Kansas City and Jackson County um, to see if we can kickstart the, the automation. Yeah, That's meaningful work. <laughs> yeah, I think, it's, I think it's fairly, really needed i mean just 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 the legislation itself is really bad um there's a so it costs money so i, I like to tell a story uh every time now that now that i know about it um which kind of like surprised me it took me it took me it took me about by surprise when i saw it so essentially it costs money it costs about 250 dollars to, to to file a petition in missouri um and if you can't afford it, you have to fill out a form. That form is literally called, uh, it was like proof of being a poor person. Like if you go look it up, it's, that form is, it exists. It's, they're literally just, hey, you're a poor person. So, so when I, when I was like, okay, I think this is something that we need to see if we can not, not, not you know, allow that. All, all yeah. my brain can say to that is yikes. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot Maybe of yikes. proving you're poor enough to get benefits, which is, that's why we need your universality, where we tax the rich and we give it away free to everyone. 
So on that note. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> taxing Emily's time and let her get going. <laughs> now I'm here to talk about taxing the rich all day. <laughs> cool. So it's, it sounds like we're, we're drawn to a close here. Uh, I, uh, last time we did like a little quick roundup of things that we wanted to say, like, Hey, you should take a look at this thing. It's happening now or soon. Uh, and I did have an item for that. If y'all will allow me to indulge myself with that. I, I happen to notice on the code for America Slack that there is now a brigade in Columbus, Ohio, which some of you out there may know that is like a former hometown of mine. So I just wanted to give them a little congratulatory message here on the stream for starting open Columbus. Woo-hoo. Yes, and you can find them at meetup.com slash open Columbus is one word. Yep. Um, I also have one thing. Um, March 7th, it's open day to day. Um, if, you, if anyone is available to, you know, kind of just work, work on, um, you know, playing with data sets or, or, or creating some visualizations, um, I'm sure there's, there's most, uh, it's, it's an international, there's local events all over the world. So. Uh, if you got time on a Saturday, you want to come hang out and play some play with some data. Um, I definitely recommend it. Well, I, I have one more thing. I've said this a number of times, but I'm sorry to be annoying viewers and team. But Propel is hiring, um, looking for product designers, legal, uh, software engineers, product folks. Um, come work on cool stuff with me and shoot me that good DM. Yeah. Nice. Um, I. Th- I think I said this last time, but in New York City's Open Data Day event, School of Data is March 7th, and I recently finagled a way to get myself there. So um, let me know if you're heading there or if you want to do some kind of happy hour in New York, because I will be working. Yes, do it. (laughs) Go forth and finagle. Excellent life advice. Sweet. Great. I want to thank everyone for coming with us on this journey on this stream. And I want to thank uh, you, Emily, especially for spending your time with us and letting us learn from your experiences and your views. Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. This was super fun. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at civictechchat. Visit us on the web at civictech.chat or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.